0: You would think that if there was ever a, a Sunday morning that uh, would be free from uh, strife and frustration, it would be Easter Sunday morning, right? Uh, if, any, if there's any day that, that should be better than the others that we experience, it should be this one, I would think. And yet, we have proven that we still have to deal with stress and frustration even on Easter Sunday. Um, You know, some of you late service people may not be able to appreciate that, but we actually had a service on this campus at 7 a.m. And all those people will tell you about the stress of Easter Sunday morning, getting up at 5 in the morning and getting here and all that stuff. But anyways, you guys are the the perfect group, right? You have had no stress today. And I'm certain are enjoying it with uh, no issues. But, you know... We, we do have uh, a life that seems to bring frustrations, don't we? We have a life that continually challenges us, uh, causes us to uh, uh, be in turmoil some of the time. Seems that we never have enough time so that we're always in a hurry. Does that describe you? You're always in a hurry to get someplace even though there's nothing really there. Uh, never have enough money. So we work harder and and become more frustrated and pinch pennies and you know build our own stress. Uh, on top of this, we have <clears throat> the decline of our our physical bodies. You know, uh, I'm I'm certain that this happens to everybody, but I'm personally experiencing this decline um, in body and notice that I can't do the things I used to do, um, and you know. Fitness has become more of a challenge. Controlling weight is, you know, always on the mind. Uh, Battling illness at one degree or one level or another. Uh, Just a constant struggle physically. I mean, never being able to just be at at rest, be at peace. Uh, And then we have, of course, relationships that we all are in. And knowing that unless we really... Focus on those relationships unless we really work at those things, then, then they'll deteriorate as well. And sometimes, even when we work at them, they deteriorate. Um, and so, we, we live in a, in a world of decline. We live in a world that, that seems to uh, obey the law of, or the second law of thermodynamics everything is in decline, everything is going away. Um, As Romans 8 says, the whole creation groans for relief. Uh, Can you relate to this? Can you relate to the groaning of your soul and body, uh, your spirit? Um, We inherently know that there there must be more here. There there must be uh, something better. We we know that, that something seems to be out of order and let me say something, we are right. Something is out of place. Uh, our, our soul and our body long for renewal. They long for immortality that only God can provide. We, we long for the new, don't we? we? We love new things, new cars, new clothes, new experiences, new relationships. We we. We long for those things. We long for a new, incorruptible body, one that can live like we know deep in our souls we were meant to live, one that we can, uh, a body that we can live with that will leave all these struggles and stresses in the rearview mirror. I guess what I'm saying is we long for resurrection. That's what we long for. And we may not always be able to describe it, but that's what it is. We, we long for what Jesus presently has, a new body, an incorruptible physical body that has no issues. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this day, and I want to ask you to consider all that his resurrection implies. I know that's a large subject, and we're not going to get to all of it, of course, But I want you to expand your mind just a little bit beyond the fact that a Jewish guy a few thousand years ago came out of the tomb. To the shock of everybody who knew him. I want you to consider the implications of that historical fact. And I'm going to guide you through these things this morning. The great Charles Spurgeon said this, The resurrection of our divine Lord from the dead is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Perhaps I might be more accurately to say or call it the keystone of the Ark of Christianity. For if that fact could be disproved, the whole fabric of the gospel would fall to the ground. So today, of course, it's the most important Sunday on the Christian calendar. This this is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, This is the day that Christians all over the world do their best to be in church which is why many churches are so full on this Sunday. We know that there's something unique and special about Easter. Jesus having endured all that he did leading up to his crucifixion, things like betrayal, false accusations, beatings, floggings, ridicule, shame, humiliation, and so forth. Finally, being nailed through hand and foot uh, onto a rough wooden cross and lifted up and dropped into a hole to keep the cross upright. Um, survived six hours before he died, and then was wrapped and placed in a borrowed tomb. But here's where the story gets interesting. On the very next Sunday, the universe changed forever, and we know why. The first resurrection of many resurrections took place just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus' resurrection, of course, demonstrated what is in store for all of us who embrace Him by faith, who turn away from our sin and and follow Him wholeheartedly and call Him our Lord? See, His physical resurrection is one of the ramifications of that resurrection. Is is that it's a it's a foretaste. It's a it's a wooing of those of us who yet remain mortal. Uh, of what uh, it, it woos us towards what we actually long for and and know in our hearts is available. Um, and this is, this is what the resurrection of Christ does. Um, it woos us towards our own resurrection. It calls us from some place deep within inside ourselves to think about resurrection ourselves. We can experience what Jesus did, and those of us who know Christ, in fact, will. Every person in this room, every person on this planet, who embraces Jesus Christ as Lord will receive blessings because of his resurrection. Every single Christian who embraces Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior who turned from their sin are recipients of Jesus' resurrection blessings, both now and future blessings. So if there's an incentive that I could put before you this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not yet done so, it's this very thing so that you might personally experience the resurrection blessings offered to us in Christ's resurrection. Now, Jesus' resurrection has many important elements that every Christian values deeply and everyone needs to hear. And so this morning, I would like to share with you a few things. One being what resurrection blessings are. Two, the source from which all these current and future blessings come and thirdly, the effect of these resurrection blessings on us who receive them, and then finally, the basis of these resurrection blessings. What are they based on? So let's begin, in case you're uh, hoping to have escaped Psalm 119 this morning, which we find ourselves in, you need to open your Bible there, and we're going to try to find a resurrection verse in one of the 176 that are available. Now, Uh, We are going to cheat a little bit. For those of you who don't know, we are actually in uh, ready to be preached at verse 25, but I'm going to skip forward to a resurrection verse in this psalm that uh, I think is a little more conducive to this particular Sunday. Psalm 119 verse 41 says this, and you'll see resurrection implications all over this verse as soon as I read it. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Can you sniff out a little resurrection in there? There is, it's there, and I wanna show it to you. First of all, I wanna show you from this verse the source of resurrection blessings. Let me ask you a question. Is God moved to grant mercy or grace to anyone for how good they are? No, of course we know that, right? Do you think that God extends mercy and his goodness to those who deserve it? Again, no. Can we in any way nudge the hand of God towards grace, towards benevolence on our behalf? Of course, again, the answer would be no. With a little thought, I think that you'll conclude that for God to react or respond to anything in anyone would require him to be at the direction of something outside of himself, right? So this could not be the case. He, he, would, he would be dependent in a way on our goodness or on our worth before he could act in mercy towards us or act in grace towards us. Since God isn't dependent on anything, then this theory is flawed. So in order for God to remain God, he must be the first mover. He must be the initiator, initiator of all things between us and him. Uh, which is what the Bible teaches. There can be no force or persuasion outside of himself that causes his decisions to be benevolent. Um, there are a few verses that would support this. Acts 17, for example, says, uh, God, uh, is, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, God doesn't receive anything from us, Um, even though we bring our praises to him. He is not dependent upon anything from us to act in any way, uh, in any circumstance, for us or against us. He he is totally existent outside of us. That's what they call transcendence. Uh, Ezekiel 36 also gives us an idea of what I'm trying to suggest to you. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. It's not because you've done anything special. It's not because you're so good. It's not because there's something that I must respond to. The only reason that I'm being um, benevolent towards you, Israel, is because of my name. So he he points his goodness extended to the people of Israel back to his own identity. And then 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's according to His mercy, not according to your worth, not according to your goodness, not according to your good works. It's according to His mercy that He acts. So, It's a good thing that God doesn't wait until we are worth his actions toward us, don't you think? Um, But in case there's anybody in the room that thinks they deserve uh, the grace and mercy of God, let me read for you some verses that might help you change your mind. Jeremiah 14 says, Though our iniquities iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake for our backslidings are many, we have sinned against you." This is not just a description of Israel. This is a mirror for all of us. Then Titus 3, he saved us, not because of the works we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. See, we, our works of righteousness don't affect God. In fact, what does Isaiah call them? Filthy rags. Right? Even our best, the best we can pull off, the prophet Isaiah calls filthy rags. So there's nothing innately or externally a part of us that will move the hand of God towards us in benevolence. It kind of leaves us dependent and desperate, doesn't it? That too sounds biblical. Biblical. What I'm trying to tell you is that the source of God's mercy and grace, the source of resurrection blessings in our life is the steadfast love of God alone. This is what verse 41 says in Psalm 119, your steadfast love come to me. Let your steadfast love come to me, Lord, for your salvation. You see, it is only his steadfast love that is the source or the fountain from which God's mercies flow. And you could ask the question that Israel did, well, why do you love us? And this is what God told Israel in Deuteronomy, because I chose to. Uh, So God has chosen to love us out of his own free will. And I'll I'll add this this, uh, adjective. It's uninfluenced free will. There is nothing that's nudging the hand of God for our benefit that flows from us. Paul, in contemplating this thought about the steadfast love of God and the value of it for every believer, says this in Ephesians chapter 3, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, knowing something that's impossible to know. See, the apostle Paul, the greatest... Theologian that ever lived was unable to describe the love of God towards us. Charles Spurgeon, again, commenting on Ephesians 3.19, said this, The love of Christ in its sweetness, its fullness, its greatness, its faithfulness, passeth all human comprehension. Where shall language be found which shall describe his matchless, his unparalleled love toward the children of men? It is so vast and boundless that as the swallow but skimmeth the water and diveth not into its depths, so all descriptive words but touch the surface while depths immeasurable lie beneath. Well might the poet say, O love, thou fathomless abyss, for this love of Christ is indeed measureless and fathomless, none can attain to it. Friends, this is an indescribable love that causes the benevolence of God towards us. The source of resurrection blessing is the uninfluenced, steadfast love of God towards us, his people. What's the effect? What is the effect of resurrection blessings on us? Maybe another question that might help you understand what I'm going after here is, what are the resurrection blessings? Well, look back at Psalm 119, verse 41. And you'll see it in black and white, literally. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation, according to your promise. So we see this effect laid out clearly right here in front of us. The effect of God's steadfast love towards us is simply this, salvation. Now, our salvation comes in two parts, and I think it's important that I explain it, um, because the first part of our salvation affects us now, here and now. And I know most of us think of salvation as a future event, but I want to have you consider the implications of the resurrection and the resurrection blessings on us today. So what that Jesus was raised from the grave 2000 years ago? Does that make any difference to me today? I'm about to tell you why it does. All right? It's it's a present value to everybody in the room. And of course, I'm not not suggesting to you that the great and glorious day that we're looking forward to you is of any less value. I'm just saying the resurrection blessings that came from Christ's resurrection have eminent value today. First of all, we have this idea of temporal salvation or current salvation. One of the amazing current resurrection blessings that we can experience today uh, is a theological reality with practical implications. And the theological reality is this, God views us as perfect through the lens of Christ, okay? That is a massive theological reality that has very, very important practical implications. And by the way, If theology doesn't impact the practical side of life, it's not good theology. So let's think about how this this very important truth that being viewed as righteous in the sight of the judge of all the universe has. Romans 4.25. And there are every single New Testament author addresses this issue. Let me just pick one from Romans four. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. No, I I picked that one because it included the idea of resurrection. He was raised for our justification. His resurrection has something to do with your justification before God. Another way that the New Testament authors describe this is, is putting on the robe or the righteousness, the righteous robe of Christ. Isaiah even talks about that. We we have received a foreign or an alien righteousness. It's not a righteousness of our own so that we could brag about it. It's a righteousness that comes from someone someplace else. Jesus Christ, the God-man. His righteousness is applied to all who embrace him. His righteousness is what covers our sin, what keeps the Father, the judge of the universe, from seeing what we truly are. I've used this illustration before, but it's a good one. We are all stinky onions, but when you wrap it in cellophane, you're still an onion, but you don't stink anymore. All right? Um, I, I use that illustration. I preach down at the jail every week, and I use that illustration with those guys. And I, and I said, uh, do you understand this? And one of the guys said, Yeah. Bob here stinks. And they got part of it. You see, we just because the Father sees us as, as righteous in the Son doesn't mean we are no longer struggling with sin. It means that His righteousness cloaks us. And He sees nothing but Christ. That's why, that's why Paul can say, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should be one of your favorite verses. Because of his steadfast love, God grants mercy. Uh, justice is always looking for what is deserved, right? That's justice. But, but mercy looks for what is wanted, what is needed. And, and the love of God applies that to us. His infinite kindness is something that God grants, or from which God grants grace and peace in abundance. And because of his grace and mercy and peace that we receive because of the resurrection of Christ, the guilt of sin has been presently lifted. And this is a difficulty for many of us in this room. Um, Because of our our, our short-sightedness and our our self-centeredness, we can't let go of some of the mistakes we've made in life. Maybe I should say it more biblically, some of the sins we've committed in life. But here we see in, in the, the beautiful implications of the resurrection, how God's bringing his son back to life deals with our guilt of sin. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said something very important that relates to our guilt over sin. You remember this, he said it is finished. Right? He didn't say it is finished almost and when we get forward here a little bit, you just I'll, I'll hand out whips that you can each take care of yourselves. No, it says it is finished. It's done. The sin has been wiped away, clean, nailed to the cross, gone forever, thrown into the deepest sea. So if you have taken your sins to Jesus, you are free to forget them and stop fretting over them and allowing them to haunt you as you have allowed them to do throughout your life. There is no legitimate place for carrying around the guilt of your past sins if you are in Christ because he took care of those, and to continually revisit them is not believing what he said or what Paul said about him. You see, the peace of God is another current resurrection blessing, Um, and and this is a result of what Christ has done. He died for our sins and, and was raised back to life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a confirmation from God the Father to the world, to his Son, to all that were watching in heaven and hell that what Jesus did accomplished its task. We have so many blessings, and I do not have the time to cover them all, but let me just read for you Jeremiah's perspective on all the resurrection blessings that we have. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And then he bursts out, great is your faithfulness. What a great God we have. But it's not just a temporal renewal or salvation that we experience. The... Resurrection blessings will carry us throughout eternity. This is one of the things where if you've been in the church for long or in Christ for long, you hold as dear. The, the eternal ramification or implications of the resurrection are wonderful. If you are one of those that believe that Jesus Christ was raised from, the, raised from the dead and that he came to die for your sins and you've taken your sins to him and placed them at the foot of the cross, then you have no need to fear the unknown of the future, of life after death. And I know a lot of people fear that, concerned about it, even people who call themselves Christians. And, and the resurrection... Part of the implications, of, or one of the implications of the resurrection is that it deals with this fear. In Romans chapter 8, for example, Paul is addressing this. And he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, and if you're in Christ, he does, right? The Holy Spirit indwells all believers. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. So the same spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is going to do that same work in you after you've died. That doesn't mean three days later you'll come back and be walking around Jerusalem like Jesus did. Our our physical resurrection is a reality. It'll it'll be identical to Jesus' physical resurrection, but our resurrection will not take place until Jesus comes a second time. And at his coming, all who have died in Christ will be raised incorruptible. In other words, perfect, renewed bodies, just like Jesus is able to experience and enjoy all that Jesus did on earth during the last 40 days of his experience here. We sang in this song, in Christ alone this morning, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. This is a resurrection blessing. There is no guilt in life because he's taken care of sins. He's nailed it to the cross. He's died for them. He rose again. There is no fear in death because of what Jesus did on the cross. And our future is secure. And by the way, glorious. So I want you to come close to me this morning and listen to what I'm about to say. The salvation offered us in Jesus is a really good deal. And there is no logical, spiritual, or any reason to turn it away, to reject it. The resurrection of Jesus has provided for us current and future blessings that are infinitely enjoyable, enjoyable, satisfying, and I'm gonna add, fascinating. If you don't spend much time contemplating your future as a Christian, you ought to. It'll give you strength for today. It'll help you in the battles that you face today by considering all that Christ has for us in the near future. We we, we now have a guilt-free, power indued love-driven relationship with our Creator, and He has a fantastic future awaiting us. So after our deaths, we're going to have a completely new and indestructible body, and this body will be able to experience God and the known universe in ways that you might only read in some C.S. Lewis fantasy book. It is gonna be spectacular. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven. Might be worth your read. So we have the source of these resurrection blessings being the steadfast love of God. We have the effect of resurrection blessings being present and future salvation. Now let's look at the basis. How do we know this is true? Might be a good question. Uh, based on what? Well, look at Psalm 119, verse 41 again. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Now, of course, if you've been here uh, in our study of Psalm 119, you know that your promise, those two words, your promise technically is just a synonym of the eight or ten synonyms that are used to describe the Word of God. So he's saying something like this, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your Word. And this is a good interpretation. But the reason he called it your promise is because God's Word is filled with promises. And, and one of the overarching promises that, that kind of ties all of his promises together is the promise that every Jewish boy, including the one who grew up and wrote this passage, would have been taught over and over and over again. It would have been a promise his parents would have repeated to him night and day, over and over. And it's the promise first described in Genesis 3.15. Listen to this. Let me set the stage. Adam and Eve have sinned, God is coming and calling a council between Adam and Eve and Satan and himself and handing out the judgment, handing out the curse, if you will, for their rebellion. And in the middle of his curse against Satan in the form of the serpent says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was the the first taste of the gospel. This was the first hint of a solution to our sin problem. This is the first picture of resurrection promises being applied to those who will embrace Christ. Now, starting in Genesis 3.15 and continuing throughout Old Testament history, the the idea of of a uh, promised Messiah, promised Savior, was expanded upon uh, through God's new revelations to his prophets, through the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, the understanding of God's plan in saving his people uh, and doing so through his Messiah became more and more and more clear the longer the New Testament times went on. Okay? And so, as, as thinking back to the, the veiled promise of Genesis 3.15, uh, what they would know at that time is, God is going to solve our sin problem. He's going to take care of the tempter, and he's going to win. And it seems like we're going to be on in on that victory. That's what Adam and Eve heard in hearing the condemnation of the serpent. They heard the promise. Um, As this Old Testament promise began to unfold, it becomes more clear to everybody that's reading, including everyone who's participating in the Old Testament. Um, Adam and Eve didn't know as much as, as Abraham and Abraham didn't know as much as David and so forth and so on, all the way up to the time of John the Baptist who introduced Christ. The amazing thing about this promise this promised Messiah is that it wasn't just Israel's Messiah as they had thought you see God had determined to send a Savior who would be the Savior of all people remember to whom the promise was given who was it given to Adam and Eve the parents of all people Adam and Eve were not Jewish Adam and Eve were the parents of all people. The promise is for all people. The Savior is for all people. This Messiah would come to earth. He would live a perfect life. He would die like the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He would die for the sins of the people. This is why John the Baptist introduced Jesus to Israel by saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he points to Jesus. And all these Jewish people who've been taught about the coming Messiah, about the coming Lamb, about the coming solution, would look to Jesus and say, are you kidding? He's actually here? And John would say, as God's prophet, I'm telling you, this is the one. <laughs> if you would have been there, you would have looked just like you are now, except what your mouth would have been open. It would have blown your mind. But not only was he to die... But he was to do something totally unexpected and unprecedented in human history. He was going to come out of the grave. So this was new territory for everybody. Um, He he was going to rise again from the dead and, and conquer death itself, the greatest enemy of mankind. He was going to conquer sin by taking it to the cross and paying the penalty therein. He was gonna conquer the tempter. It was at Calvary where Satan's head was crushed by the heel of the Messiah. And thus, Jesus Christ fulfilled all the promises all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And in this resurrection promise, in this resurrection reality, in Jesus Christ coming out of the dead, a great and new and wonderful promise is made for all of his followers. You too will be resurrected. So what am I saying? What I'm telling you is that the basis of our resurrection, our own resurrection, includes current and eternal benefits that are based on what is written. It's based on the promises of God. There isn't a more succinct summary of the gospel and all the implications of it than Psalm 119, verse 41. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he went back to the same well. He said this in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, from who? From God, that Christ died for our sins. Now, listen closely, in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures were the ones who said Christ would die. The Messiah would be killed. All right? And then Paul says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And again, he says the same statement, in accordance with the scriptures. All this was foretold hundreds of years before Christ lived on this planet. You think, man, this resurrection thing's kind of a foreign concept. Uh, Well, put yourself in the first century when resurrection was a completely new and foreign concept. We've had 2,000 years to, to acclimate. They, of course, had not. Let me give you an illustration of how this, how you and I might get used to the thought of our own physical, personal resurrection, because it's hard to kind of conceptualize. The, uh, the cell phone is uh, an amazing invention. It's an invention of man. And this cell phone, uh, if you would have taken it back, say, 300 years uh, earlier, um, and maybe showed this to a wagon train going across Wyoming and told them that you could just touch this this screen here and tell them what the weather's going to be tomorrow uh, and whether or not they should try to go over the pass because it's going to snow. Uh, you know, we could have saved Donner a lot of trouble. <laughs> this would have been this would have been a, miraculous, a miracle on the level of The resurrection but you and I look at this little black thing and we don't think anything of it we're just waiting for the the newer issue you know we're not we're not impressed by this thing anymore do you remember when the first cell phone came out you had to carry that battery around a 40-pound battery in a suitcase and that's not a joke that thing was a beast but we were all impressed A guy walking around with a massive suitcase with a cord coming out of it, man, that guy's got it going on. You know, now this. It doesn't impress us anymore. You know what? Resurrection's not going to impress you after you've been raised yourself. It's going to be very familiar to you. You're going to just realize it as another divine act of God, just like creation. We go outside every day and see creation, and we're not all that impressed with Mount Adams anymore. We're not all that impressed with any kind of created beauty, really, anymore. Unless someone points it out and says, hey, you got to look at that. Look at the sunset this morning. No. The same way the resurrection, when we come out of, the, out of the tomb and are physically resurrected, it will become familiar to us, and we'll say, yeah, this is exactly what God had in mind. Now, let me me try to share with you in closing, uh, I think a really important implication of resurrection blessing. In order to receive resurrection blessing, you must do something with the invitation to participate. You know, you can get an invitation to a, a great ball And unless you show up, you miss the festivities, right? It's very similar to salvation. You may know everything about salvation. You may have heard it a hundred times. You may be raised in a family, raised in a church. You may have the stories backwards and forwards. You You could tell all the stories yourself. But the question is, have you received the invitation personally? Have you showed up? Listen to Psalm 119, verse 41 again. This is a prayer from the psalmist. Let your steadfast love come to me. Let your steadfast love come to me. He is running after it. He has received the invitation. He has come to the source, the steadfast love of God. He has come to the Lord. He says, Let your steadfast Lord come to me, O oh Lord. He knows to whom to pray. He knows the only source of hope. He knows the place where the only one who has the power to renew everything, to hit restart. He is the only one who can satisfy the resurrection yearnings of your soul. He's the only one who can forgive your sin and give you that new heart that's required to know God, to experience Him. He's the only one who can qualify you for resurrection blessings. In order for you to personally receive the mercy and grace that is offered in Jesus Christ... In order for you to take hold of the invitation to receive his resurrection blessings, you must call out to God, O oh Lord, let me experience your steadfast love. You must take your sins to God and lay them at the foot of Jesus' cross. And acknowledge your sin and your need for God and plead his mercy and forgiveness. And believe and trust that what the Bible says is true. That if you'll do that, he will forgive them. He will renew all things. Literally with a wave of a hand. He is God, we're talking about. Who came out of the grave. Let your steadfast love and salvation Come to me, O Lord. Is that the prayer of your heart this morning? Let me close with this quote from Spurgeon about resurrection. Once more, the resurrection of Christ is operating at this present time with a quickening power on all who hear the word aright. The sun is to the vegetable world a great source of growth In this month of April, he goes forth with life in his beams, and we see the result. The buds are bursting, the trees are putting on their summer dress, the flowers are smiling, and even the seeds which we buried in the earth are beginning to feel the vivifying warmth. They see not the Lord of the day, but they feel his smile. Over what an enormous territory is the returning sun continually operating? How potent are his forces when he crosses the line and lengthens the day. Such is the risen Christ. In the grave he was like the sun in his winter solstice, but he crossed the line in his resurrection. He has brought us all the hopes of spring and is bringing us the joys of summer. He is quickening many at this hour and will yet quicken myriads. This is the power with which the missionary goes forth to sow. This is the power in which the preacher at home continues to scatter the seed. The risen Christ is the great producer of harvests. By the power of his resurrection, men are raised from their death in sin to eternal life. Has that been your experience? Friends, have you received the invitation to the party? Let's pray.